0: All right. Thanks, Annie. I I thought that was just a prayer for uh, just a few of us. I loved. I was like, man, no, this is good. I think we could all hear, by the way. So don't feel bad. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let me uh, get myself situated. Let's enter into this, and uh, and I'll just say this little prayer over us now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our redeemer. Um, today I want to talk about bringing healing into brokenness, which is, you know, hilarious considering I'm, you know, talking about kind of this chaotic day, uh, coming into this. But I I just saw an article that came out that 90 year old William Shatner, uh, who for those of us who are old enough or vintage enough know is Captain Kirk from the original Star Trek, right? He, uh, he got to go into space for the first time last year. Did you guys hear this? Uh, William Shatner got to go into space. So he went aboard the uh, Blue Origin capsule. So thanks to your Amazon.com purchases, William Shatner got to, got to go into space. And, uh, and he experienced something that's been called the overview effect. And it's apparently a near universal experience people have when they view our planet from over space. And that is that he was hit with grief. Um, it, He said this, he said, I wept for the earth because I realized it is dying. Um, And then he said he he wept for the young people who will reap what we have sown in terms of our destruction of the earth. And he had to find a place to be alone and weep um, on the space capsule. And apparently this is is kind of a universal experience. And in fact, his was probably a light version of it because he was only there for a little while. The longer people spend in space, the more they look at the earth, the more grief they feel, is what studies have shown. Um, He was up there and he sensed the the brokenness and he wished that it weren't so. He wished that it could be healed. And this seems to be what happens when someone gets perspective, if you will. Um, Other astronauts report being convinced that the things that drive us apart, like conflict and war and strife and our differences are so not worth it. They come back into the Earth um, from space and are just, just utterly bothered by the things that drive us apart as human beings. And they sense deeply the need to regain our interconnectedness um, and to struggle together and to help one another, uh, to love one another. Um, this is a common experience of people that come back from outer space. Uh, Frank White wrote a book on this overview effect, and he found that a number of former astronauts had had the same exact idea, that if they could somehow get world leaders to join each other in space, that they might have more perspective and seek peace with one another and take care of one another instead of fighting with one another. And if that would be true of world leaders who are at war, you know, how much more would it be for, like, family members to like get taken into space and to think about what they go through together from that perspective, right? Or, or people within a smaller community, within a neighborhood, that that guy with the dog that just won't stop barking and you just, you know, every time you see him you just kinda wanna punch him in the face. If you could go to outer space with this person, what would that do? If you looked at the world and saw how really small it is and how connected it all is and just thought about, what does it all matter, actually, in light of this perspective? So here's the question for us. How how does God feel from his location in eternal dimensions, right? What perspective might the earth's creator have, and how can we live out of that perspective? How, How should we feel about the brokenness in the world? And, and believe me when I say, I don't give you this talk, right, with like starry eyes right now. I'm all thrown off about a printer um, and how it didn't work. It's hard to live from that perspective, right? It really is. Um, I've, a ta- I've talked to a number of, of folks here in this church recently because a lot of us are reading because of Surge and Infuse, the book, The True Story of the Whole World. Um, and I've discovered that many of us, if not most of us, Um, or or a large number of us grew up being taught some similar things about our world, about life on earth. And this is for a point where I kind of have to acknowledge I may be speaking to a few different groups. Some of us grew up in a flavor of church, and I would say it was very influenced by the church's engagement with media, specifically. That's not always the the reason that people give, but I say that because some versions of church sell really well. Um, They do really well in the media. Um others of us grew up around churches that really didn't follow that trend. We had a different different journey. Um, and of course, some of us really didn't grow up in the Christian faith at all. So there's a lot of variety in our experiences. but um, if you grew up in the latter two of those around churches that didn't follow that trend or or not in the Christian faith at all, there's a higher chance that you grew up um, generally positive about the earth and thinking it should be uh, cared for and that you know, wars should cease and peace should be sought and, and so on and so forth. And, and if you slipped out of caring about that, it probably had more to do with kind of just a sense that, like, look, um, I just have to look out for me, though, at the end of the day because the world's problems are so complex and I need to be happy. But at the end of the day, you would have said, generally, I'm supposed to care about the world. But if you grew up in circles like I did, that first group of, of churches, He almost viewed God as having created the world good, but very disposable, um, and that it had turned inherently evil very quickly, and that God was kind of waiting and watching for a day when he would extract out a few people who got their beliefs right. He would extract them out, place them in a spiritual utopia, in a spiritual place, and then he would obliterate the earth and move on. Now, I grew up with this, many of you did, or a, a version of that. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but if you look into it, this is kind of a mix of Plato's dualism, that there's, like a, there's matter and there's spirit, and that there are two different things, and even some older ideas that matter is inherently evil. Um, that dualism gets mixed with modern utopianism, that we really should be looking for a perfect utopia in which to live mixed with a skepticism that came after the world wars, which kind of said the world is obviously not getting any better, and that all got got mashed up, and our Bible was read through that lens, and especially within the last 100 years, Americans especially have assumed this was the biblical view. And it did become very popular. As I said, it was, it was kind of made for TV. And I don't mean made for TV as in people intentionally made it to televise it. I say that because it causes constant anxiety and a sense of a near, like a near future relief from that anxiety. And that, that experience is addicting. So when you read books about it, you watch television about it, it hooks you. You watch YouTube videos. You can't stop. People are drawn to it. Now, I grew up with that very baked in, and, and then I went to a school in Chicago that had a completely different way of thinking years back. And I'm actually not, not going to be saying that was the way, but I was confronted with Luke 4 in Chicago, and I was asked some questions that really made me think. Luke 4, Jesus, um, is speaking He's just been baptized, Um, he's just endured 40 days of temptation that mirror the temptations of all humanity, and he endures that temptation. He's victorious over our temptations, um, our temptations for power and to not trust God. So this, this is a very important moment in the Gospels. Jesus has been baptized, God has spoken from heaven and affirmed him as his son, He's undergone a temptation that all Jewish people would have said, ah, this is like he's doing everything that our parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, failed at. He's, he's succeeding at those things. And then he speaks. What does he say? What are the first things that he says? He says, it, Luke records this, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report about him went out through the surrounding country And he taught in their synagogues, and he was being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. What did he say? What are his first words? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled. At the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And my professor said, so this is how Jesus started his ministry. So why is it that we in the church serve the poor and work for justice so rarely? I didn't know. In fact, I didn't know, but an answer came up in my mind. And I thought, well, because isn't, like, spiritual work, most important? Like, how do you, what if you go and, like, do things for the poor, but they aren't Christians? Like, what good is it? I thought. I thought maybe the idea of poverty was a metaphor for spiritual poverty or something of that nature. What good does it do to just feed someone if they don't know Jesus? I, I, my head started spinning in all these directions. And I thought, I thought that was the biblical answer. but is that the way the Bible presents the issue? Is that the way Jesus would have said it? I'm going to attempt here in a quick survey to to convey what I've been working out for the last 20 years on this topic. So forgive me, it'll be a fire hose, right? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, what would Jesus have said? Um, The Sermon on the Mount is probably teachings that Jesus taught many, many times by the way. We think it's so long and so well-preserved because these are things Jesus taught many, many times. But Luke quotes him saying this in his Sermon on the Mount, among other things. No good tree bears bad fruit. We talked about this the other day with our pomegranate tree, right? It bears pomegranates because it's a pomegranate tree. That's how you know. And if they taste good, it's a good tree. If the pomegranates fail, it's a bad tree. If it bears oranges, it's not a good pomegranate tree. Right? We got that? That's, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known, you know what it is, by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks, Jesus says. Now in the ancient world, um, the word heart is the core of your being, your hopes and your beliefs. It's what, it's the thinking space. It might be what we would describe as the mind. And just before this, it's important to know what Jesus was telling them to do. Just before he said all this in the Sermon on the Mount, he told them, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, that is a difficult thing to do. That takes actions. And it's not just, he doesn't say convert them, he, doesn't, he says love them. Love them. Now, in Matthew's gospel, recording the same stuff, Matthew remembers and records that Jesus said something about how to fulfill God's word in the Old Testament. He said, how do you fulfill the command to love your neighbor? In the Sermon on the Mount, according to Matthew, he said, do unto them what you would have them do unto you. That's, how, that's love. So if you were hungry and wanted to be fed, then feed hungry people, right? Do to them what you would hope that they would do for you. Jesus makes this connection between our faith in God and our ability to to do unto others. And he reinforces it by saying, that goes down even to the little details of the words that you speak. Even the words that you speak are evidencing the state of your innermost self. Matthew also quotes him later in his gospel, reteaching about the fruit in the tree. He says, This, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He begins speaking now to very religious people. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. If you've been studying the Bible for a while, that's alarming to hear, because you've heard, By grace I am saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that is absolutely true. It is. But also, you'll be judged by every careless word. That's how you're judged, whether or not you're righteous and you're not. And then if you're saved, it will be only by grace. Now notice, it's not just every reckless spiritual word, it's every careless word. When you're watching sports, the careless word, right? When you slip because you are angry. When you are slandering someone, speaking something about them that might not be right. When you're gossiping about someone, speaking things about them that that you wouldn't say to them to their face. It's a little window into the core of our faith. And it's a window into what? into what we meditate upon the most, what we love the most. The Psalms teach us that they who love the Lord meditate on his words. So when we are pressed or when we are uninhibited, when we've had a beer or two, that is what will come out. When something else comes out, when the pressure's on or when we're uninhibited, it shows what we meditate on and place our faith on. So Jesus sees the spiritual life and our actions toward others, our actions toward others in the brokenness of this world, but even in the careless word that we speak, not as separate, but as utterly united. If the careless word is evidence of our faith, how much more important our response to brokenness, oppression, and injustice. Jesus, actually, right before he spoke about the tree and its fruit this time, had just healed a poor and disabled man, and he was being criticized for it. And that's why he taught them about the tree and the fruit. He says, I brought healing. You are condemning me. You need to look at the evidence of what your faith is producing in your life. To serve, to do unto others, is the product or the fruit of a true and vibrant faith. Not that you've perfected it, but it shows what is growing within you. No one in the Bible perfected this but Jesus, but it shows what is growing within you, what is evidencing what is the product of your life. Now, okay, that's Jesus, and some of us might go, okay, was, but does that, like, really, how does that address what the whole Bible's saying? Jesus comes at a certain point in redemptive history. Is that is the whole Bible on that same page, or is this a pick-and-choose moment here? And I already mentioned that in, in the Old Testament, Jesus referred to it. He said that you're supposed to love your neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that is secondary only to one other law, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And... Jesus once quizzed an expert on the law on these and and he said that the whole Old Testament law hung on these two commandments, the love the Lord your God and love your neighbor and Jesus said you're right. So, okay. So if you love your neighbor, you will be fulfilling all of the details of the Old Testament law that have to do with loving others. Let's look at a couple of key ancient texts that work that out and get a little more specific. Jesus was reading in Luke from the book of Isaiah. This is a foundational text for the Jewish people. This is the prophet Isaiah, potentially, his disciples wrote parts of it too. It begins, though, in a very interesting way. Um, we can't dig in all the way, but, but I would encourage you to do so. But he begins, he makes a comparison of God's people, and he compares them to the worst people in the world, in the history of the world, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is rough, right? He says, you all are like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he says this, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come and appear before me, who's required that you trample my courts, bring no more vain offerings, incenses an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations? I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, that's a rough way to start a book. But the interesting thing is that's all things that the Bible had taught them to do. Why is God saying he hates when they do the things the Bible taught them to do? That's confusing. Well, he goes on through the prophet. And he says, wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. How? You you should be asking, how? Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He says, essentially... All of your church going and praying and everything, especially what you do in public, is meaningless to me. In fact, it angers me when it comes from a heart that doesn't bear fruit in loving and serving the poor and the oppressed. But see, the ancient text um, is what it says and by the way, Jesus, there's a likely chance Jesus had either read this in a synagogue too, or he might have read it even before he read the part we read tonight, because he was reading from the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. But it exhibits that our faith isn't, isn't mostly seen in our religious actions or convictions, what you label yourself, or even what you do or the shirt you wear, or whatever even though those things might be good and commanded and they're there to shape us, but our true faith is seen in our actions of service, especially to the oppressed and the poor. He says, correct oppression. Like, do you realize how complex of a thing to do that is? And it's key to say, this isn't just to those we feel that we can trust. I I wish I could go into like Jesus's good Samaritan parable right now, But Jesus makes the hero of a parable who loves his neighbor their least trusted, you know, kind of social and political opposite. He makes him the hero. And the reason that he does that is he's taking the very person they would never consider their neighbor, who they would go, well, I'm not supposed to love them because they're religiously impure and they're irresponsible and yada, yada, yada. And he's saying... See, the one you think you shouldn't love, I'm going to make the hero of the story. Why? So that you will consider just how much I'm calling you to love. I'm calling you to love those you don't want to. Your enemies. Then another key text is Micah 6, especially 6.8. And here God is speaking through a preacher. And God begins by asking, how are you not committed to me? This is my paraphrase for a second. He says, I've delivered you from Egypt. I delivered you from your enemies. How is it that you're not committed to me? Today, God might say to us, I entered into history in Jesus and I died on a cross for you. I've been faithful to you. How are you not committed to me? And then the preacher reflects on behalf of all of God's people and says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? How do how do I return to God and faithfully worship God is the question on our behalf. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? These are all things required in the temple to cover sins and praise God, by the way. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is him actually using language that reminded them of Abraham, the great father of their faith, who was willing to give up his own son to worship God. And the preacher pauses and gives an answer. And he basically says, no, 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 none. That won't prove anything. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The first two are ways to love your neighbor, right? Kindness, justice. And then the heart posture walk humbly with your God. That parallels with the law love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. They're all one. Your faith, your inner anchor of the soul, your trust in God breaks out and is truly evidenced, it bears fruit in actions of love and justice, in which we serve others by being kind and sacrificial. Okay? I hope I've showed you that Jesus taught that the two are one, that the Old Testament puts the two together. What about after Jesus returns to God the Father and the Christian church moves forward? Are, are, is the Bible on the same page then? And where better to look than an ancient church letter Uh, by a man who was very familiar with Jesus. In fact, was one of his biggest critics, a real skeptic he was, his brother, James. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus and your brother says, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? I'd be skeptical of my brother. (laughs) His brothers, we learn in the Bible, were not easy to convince that he was God in the flesh But James eventually did become convinced, which is shocking. By the way, I was listening to Bart Ehrman, one of the more famous skeptics of our day and a biblical scholar who says, no, the historical uh, James was indeed the brother of Jesus of Nazareth and in fact believed that he rose from the dead and all this stuff. He said, I don't believe it, but I know that that even historically (laughs) they were brothers and James believed that about Jesus. That's shocking coming from a skeptical scholar. So James, real person, actually the brother of Jesus, actually skeptical most of his life. Okay, so what does he say? He probably would have a clue. When he's talking to Christians after he had become one, he said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they need for their body. That's an interesting phrase. Not just for their soul, for their body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Um, He's kind of quoting people who who will say, look, can it be one or the other? James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And, and basically, that's a little bit snarky. Like, good luck with that. And I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. <laughs> to believe there is a God isn't, you know, really enough, is what he's saying. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Remember I was showing you that homage to that earlier? You see that his faith was active alongside of his works, and faith was completed by his works. The two are really one. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God, You see, a person is justified by works, not faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. James gave an example of a famous patriarch and then a common and almost embarrassing saint who by the way, happened to be you know one of his great aunts, or something. He, um, Rahab was in his family tree, and Jesus's, a former prostitute, and in both cases, faith is evidenced by actions. With Abraham, as an action in worship to God, he would give up even his son. And in Rahab, it was actions toward two spies who she protected when their lives were in danger. And what's James trying to get these people to do? Why does he use this tough language? Well, in the church that he was writing to, they were pre- they were showing preference to wealthy people when they got together. And his word to them, his critique was you are dishonoring the poor. And that's why he went on that whole tirade about faith and works. They were dishonoring the poor. So when your faith gets worked out in this case, it will be that you serve and honor a poor person who can't benefit you back rather than prioritizing a rich person who can. When you're faced with that situation, your faith will show. Of course, in the book of Acts, people sold their possessions to help one another. In most eras of the church, especially when the culture wasn't Christianized, we can look back and see the church's growth and thriving was because they served the communities that needed it the most, the most vulnerable people, they were known as the servants of all. Now, when I say these things, I can almost guarantee, I've had a lot of conversations over the years in many, many churches, and, and I know there's this inward argument that we can have of who we really should serve, who are the most marginalized. Um, you need to be really careful there. I need to be really careful there. I have soft spots due to my experiences. Um, For people with certain disabilities, certain backgrounds, and most likely we all need to hear the call, even right now, to press toward the ones we aren't drawn toward naturally. Okay? So just if you're having that little moment of like, the real oppressed are X and not X, you know, be careful lean toward the ones you're not as interested in. That's probably what Jesus was trying to teach us to do in the Good Samaritan. Now, I do hope I've made the case in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Jesus and Jesus' disciples, that it's consistent that serving others, which is hard work, correcting things like injustice and oppression, which is infinitely costly, is inextricably linked to our faith. It's the fruit of true and deep faith. So if you're able to reflect and examine yourself and you want to have the experience of deep faith, you'll need to ask honestly, am I serving? Not just when, it, when I want to. Not just in the area that fills me. Am I doing the hard work to bring justice for others? Because faith without sacrificial service or love in action, as James said, is dead. Now that's not really motivating. I know. Um, Hopefully a little convicting. But if we leave it right there, that is not motivating. It's depressing. Like, great, maybe my faith's dead because I don't serve enough, right? That's where my head goes. So what would you do if you saw that or if you were kind of convinced that maybe you should be serving more? What do you do to re-enliven your faith. And I think what we need is a William Shatner-like experience, an overview experience of some form. We need perspective. We need God's perspective. We need to ask, how does God feel about the world that he's created, about the brokenness in it? John records Jesus saying something that many of us have heard a thousand times. You don't even need to have ever been to church to hear this one. It starts this way, for God so loved the world. Now, I have it stuck in my head when I hear that right there. Um, A Christian leader once said to me, when it says God so loved the world, he wasn't talking about the world, uh, like the whole world. He was just talking about people. Now, unfortunately, that's just plain and grammatically false. False. The word there is the cosmos, which is the Greek word for the ordered universe. That is what Jesus said. God so loved the ordered cosmos. Okay. Wow. Genesis tells us that after every creative movement of God, when he created the land and the sea and the animals and the plants, he meditated on what he created and he said, it is good with like a radiant smile. I made that part up, but I think if you say it's good, that's probably what's going on, right? The Apostle Paul goes on, uh, says this in Romans 8, against its will, this isn't this an interesting way of saying it? Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day When it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Do you notice that in there, the creation and God's children are two groups? So God's children will be delivered from decay. So will the creation. God so loved the cosmos. Imagine God made all of this. Have you ever made something that you like? I know a lot of you have. There's creative people Some people bake, right? Like, I don't know. There's a lot. You've all made stuff, I think. (laughs) Something. A mailbox. I love, you know I love my mailbox. Um, You've made it. You care about it. You want other people to see it, to like it, to appreciate it. You want it to work. If it's damaged, you want to fix it. I just had lunch with Sean and Jocelyn, Michaela and I did, at Beyond Bread. And Sean and I made a bunch of the seating and the tables in there. And the first thing we did is we, he said, did you see the tables? Yeah, I saw the tables. Oh man, they're not really taking care of the tables. Yeah, I know. Why does that bother us? Right? We both feel the sense that our work, what we made should be taken care of. If it's broken, it should be fixed. You should save it. You should care about it. We care about it the most. We made it. At Beyond Bread, they didn't make it. They don't seem to care. There's a certain grief in seeing your creation break and God stands beyond this planet far further out than we ever could in a way. He's far closer than we can be. He's far further out than we could ever be. He has more perspective than we could ever have. And when you hear William Shatner, who just has a little bit of ownership in this world, right? He made like a cool show and some other things. I'm sure he bakes as well. Um, But he removes himself from the earth and weeps over its brokenness. How much more the God who made it, right? When I heard that William Shatner wept when he looked at the earth, I tried to imagine what it'd be to look at the earth, and it moved me just a little bit to think of the weeping that would come if you took yourself outside of it and looked at the little pale blue dot down there and went, that's all we have, right? God is offering us his perspective. The brokenness pains him. Our conflicts and oppression pain him. They aren't good. They aren't right. It grieves him. Now, when I talk to people outside of Christianity and I talk about this, the brokenness of the world, I have found that almost all of them can relate. When I think about what's the call of Christians, are we supposed to like be serving and correcting you know, justice or dealing with spiritual matters and speaking to people about the salvation that comes in Jesus? I think it's always both. And I actually think when we care about the brokenness of the world, we will relate to people who will be intrigued by a God who cares as well. And that is what God does. So what did Jesus do? For God so loved the ordered cosmos that he gave. We we read this so fast, right? If you've heard it before, he gave. He gave. Not just money or prayers. He gave his only son. His very self, his heart. So, whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have life everlasting. And where? Life where? This is where evangelism really gets good. The Bible consistently says, it's on earth. Do you know that? I don't know how many times, like, we've, we've had, I've had so many conversations recently. I mean, Sam's laughing. We just talked about it. And I've, I was in the same boat. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. The life that we're given is here. When God came here to serve in the person of Jesus, he healed the, he healed the sick, he gave to the poor. There's that one little Tidbit about Judas and how they knew he was a thief is because he stole out of the money bag of the money they gave to the poor. Think about that. That means all the three years Jesus was traveling around with his disciples, they were giving away money. He brought together people who were in conflict. Think about Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He was a tax collector. Um, And then Simon the zealot. These are two people who in their day hate each other talk about the far right and the far something i don't even know like like matthew is the one who betrays his country and steals from people simon and the zealot is the one who plots assassinations to take the country back they both end up following jesus it's wild it's wild and yes he called them to believe in him and they did His trust in his Father was evidenced by his healing works that he did, and then people came and believed in him. His words and his serving combined and drew people in. Now, God isn't done. He won't be done until he's done, and we are here, and he's given us the same spirit that Jesus had. That spirit that entered Jesus at his baptism and sent him into the desert to overcome all of our temptations— And sent him into the synagogue to say, Today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing, is in you. If you are in Christ, that's insane. And we are his body in this world. We are called to do the works that Jesus did, to serve and to undo the brokenness. And the end vision of the Bible is not that we're taken off the earth but that God renews and revives the earth. As Jesus rolled up that scroll that he read out of, if he'd rolled it all the way to the bottom, he would have read this. Isaiah 65, look, God says, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. And there's some hints to us in the book of Revelation that the new earth isn't like like blown up and replaced, but it's like the The perfections of eternity descend. The city of God descends onto the earth. It's a renewal, a revival. No one will ever even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, God says. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Jerusalem, by the way, means city of peace. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they've lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. What? Only the cursed will die that young. I'm not sure what that part's about, by the way. I got to work on that one. In those days, listen to this, people will live in the houses that they built and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Do you know why that's in there? Because injustice means that some people only get to build houses for others and never for themselves. And some people only get to gather, gather food out of other people's fields and never their own. Unlike the past, invaders will not take houses or confiscate vineyards. For my people will live as long as the trees and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. Like, you will get to enjoy what you work for. Do you see that? Issues of innocence of life, of economics, of political justice are all tied in there. That is where things are headed. They will not work in vain. Their children will not be doomed to misfortune. They will be blessed by the Lord and their children will be blessed. I will answer them even before they call out to me. While they're still talking about their needs, I will answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The snakes will eat the dust. (laughs) There's that part too. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's the future vision. Jesus brought healing while he was here, and we are called to continue his work. William Shatner got perspective by flying into space. We may not get to fly into space. Maybe we will. But we are given God's perspective He loves the world more than any astronaut ever could because he made it, and he made everything in it. And he has a good plan in which we don't just reap what we have sowed, but the grace of God is this. In Jesus, we can reap what Jesus sowed. We aren't just inching back impending doom. When we serve, we're giving people a taste of what's actually happening of where things are really headed. And that's a gift, and that's compelling. This evening, the invitation is to come to Jesus. And I really want to spell out here, did Jesus die for our sins? Yes, he did. If we believe on him, we will be saved. And Jesus When he served this meal to his disciples, what had he just done? He had just washed their feet. And he said, those who follow me are going to wash other people's feet. If you want to be great in this world, be the least. Serve. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And he took the wine from the table and he said, this is the wine, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of many. And then he said this little piece that's really, really cool. He said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna eat of this bread or drink of this wine until I eat and drink of it anew with you. What? That means he's awaiting a day when all things are made right when he's going to sit with us and dine with us and we'll enjoy his presence forever. That's what fuels our work and our faith. That's what can fuel us to serve when it's hard and when we're extremely tired. And that's the vision that can break us out of our own brokenness and give us the impetus to serve one another. The invitation is to come and receive him this evening by faith. We're going to do a couple of things here. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and there's going to be a time of silence. And that time is just time for you to reflect on these things. Maybe there's something um, that you need to bring bring to Jesus. I really hope that if there was some form of conviction that you had this evening, that you would be consoled by this, that Jesus is extremely gracious. It's at the very heart of God to be merciful and compassionate. In fact, Jesus is the safest place to go with your brokenness and your failures. So if you sense something like that, God isn't saying, stay under your failures, you know, feel terrible. He said, bring them to me. I'll I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. And you can have a new start even now from everything you've done in your life or if you just got to talk about something this week, he'll cleanse your slate and give you a fresh start. Maybe you just need to reflect on these things and say, do I have this hope? Maybe you just need to ask God for it. Ask him for the faith you don't yet have. Whatever the case, there's going to be two minutes for you just to speak with God. After that, Mike's going to do some music. And during that time, I'll serve the Lord's table to you. And that's a chance for all of us who can say, yes, I receive what Jesus has done for me and what he's done behalf of the whole ordered cosmos. I receive it. I want to be a part of it. I want to accept Jesus's powerful work, his renewing work in my own heart so I can be a part of his mission. Then come up and receive it. If you're not there, that's okay. You can sit back and observe and think about these things. And we'll sing together, and after that, we'll have dinner together. And the idea of having dinner together is uh, its to get us together and hang out, but it's also a foretaste, our little glimpse into what it might be like someday to sit and eat with the people of God in a new earth. So I'll pray for us and leave space for you. Father, thank you for this church, this group of people that have come together uh, this evening for all of our friends, for those who aren't with us, the churches throughout this city, throughout this state, throughout this country, throughout the world, who all are looking to you for salvation. Thank you for how much bigger and greater you are than this ordered cosmos. Thank you for the perspective you have. And we beg of you that you would give more of that perspective to us that we would serve out of that perspective, that we would serve out of understanding that you, our great God and our King, so loved everything that you created that you gave. You gave your life. So may we follow in your steps. Teach us how and lead us as we pray.